morning, this is uh, Gavin Gibanoni. I'm a neurologist at uh, the Royal London Hospital and I work at Queen Mary University of London. And today I'm talking about baclofen and its impact on the cognitive functioning of people with uh, multiple sclerosis and spasticity. And this was triggered by a, um, a case study. And this is a 54-year-old male who has second progressive MS, and he had stopped taking disease-modifying therapy two years ago because he became a wheelchair user. And he has very marked spasticity in his legs. And despite being on baclofen, 20 milligrams three times a day, um, he notices that you know, he wakes up in the early hours of the morning with spasms. He takes his baclofen at 8 a.m., 3 p.m., and, and between 10 and 11 p.m. before going to bed at night. And he's asking what can be done for his spasticity and also what can be done for the excessive sedation he suffers from because of taking baclofen. So the problem we have is we don't have any oral drugs, tablets that work on spasticity. They don't have off-target effects. That include sedation and, sadly, cognitive slowing and poor concentration and attention. Um, baclofen is a very old drug. It was developed in the 1960s, you know, almost 60 years ago, as an anti-seizure drug, and it wasn't very effective at suppressing seizures, and was repurposed in the 1970s to treat spasticity. It works on a receptor in the brain called the GABA B receptor. So GABA is the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter. This is the chemical signals that uh, neurons uh, use to communicate with each other, and they are uh, what we call stimulatory ones and inhibitory ones. And GABA is the main inhibitory one, and there are two receptors, the GABA-A and GABA-B. <clears throat> the thing about baclofen, it has a very narrow therapeutic window, so you have to achieve quite high levels to have an anti-aspastic effect, but that window is the same window where you get CNS side effects, you get cognitive slowing and sedation. And because it has quite a short half-life, and the short half-life varies between two and six hours, yeah, and the drug levels, um, half-life means the time it takes for the blood levels to be reduced by half. So what happens is you get these peaks and then they rapidly drop and they go below the level where you get antispastic effects, so you get wearing off. So you have to take the drug quite frequently. And I have some people even take it six times a day. Uh, you know, we normally start off with three times a day and we build up <clears throat> uh, you know, four or five times a day, sometimes depending on how rapidly it wears off. And you do get wearing off phenomena. In other words, your spasticity gets worse before the next dose. This also interacts with what we, I call the diurnal variation. This is the day-night variation in spasticity. So those of you who have spasticity may notice that in the early mornings, between 4 and 6 a.m., your spasticity gets a lot worse. And this is probably due to the, the way the brain works. There are these uh, circadian rhythms. Uh, and we know that when you, you at your worst with spasticity and baclofen is wearing off, you often get your worst spasms and can be very uncomfortable and even painful. So the one solution would be to take a slow-release formulation, and the drug industry had been trying for decades to develop an, a, a good slow-release formulation of baclofen. And I know there is one that has been developed, and it's available in, in North America, United States, but it's not available in Europe or in the UK, so we can't prescribe that. So you know, what I would normally say to this patient, if they are waking up to go to the toilet or other issues, they could set their alarm and wake up, say, at 2 o'clock or between 2 and 3 and take another dose. Uh, to, to tide them over before they dose at 8 o'clock in the morning. This often works very well. If they're not prepared to wake up at night to take additional dose, then we could add in a, <clears throat> a long-acting antispastic.
and I would probably use clonazepam. Um, this is a benzodiazepine. This works on the GABA-A receptor, different receptor. And we typically start with a small dose, 0.5 milligrams. Some people even start lower than that, 0.25, which is a half of a 0.5 tablet. They're very tiny, these tablets. And you have to have to use a pull cutter if you want to use the 0.25 dose. <clears throat> and I normally increase by 0.5 milligrams every few weeks. Uh, I let people with a disease titrate themselves up you know, every two, three, four weeks <clears throat> until we get to two milligrams, the big tablet, well, there's an adequate therapeutic response. I've even had some patients needing high doses in that. I've had some patients taking four milligrams at night. Um, the benzodiazepines like clonazepam um, have this phenomenon called tachyphylaxis. Tachyphylaxis just means that you get a diminishing response with successive doses of the drug. In other words, your brain and spinal cord get used to the dose and you have to increase the dose. So you may find that the first week you respond very well to the 0.5, and then all of a sudden you need one the following week. And this is what happens with CNS effect uh, drugs. And this happens uh, with most CNS drugs, to be honest with you, and, and the different mechanisms for tachyphylaxis. One is the drug actually induces the enzymes in the liver and it breaks down the drug much more quickly. So the half-life uh, uh, gets shorter. So that's your metabolic tachyphylaxis, <clears throat> or the actual brain adapts to it. It downregulates the receptor it works on, so you need or changes the way the receptor signals, or it makes more receptors, so you need more drug. Whatever happens, though, you just need more drug to have the same effect. <clears throat> now, the opposite happens when you go on a drug holiday, all those effects uh, reverse, and then if you go back onto the high dose, you get side effects. And, uh, and this is one of the reasons why people who abuse uh, opioids <clears throat> have sudden death when they uh, uh, take a drug holiday and restart the drug. So what they do, they go, they <clears throat> come off the opioid, have a period of abstinence, and then when they relapse and they go back onto the dose they were taking before, it actually is an overdose because all those mechanisms driving tachyphylaxis have reversed. And when they take the same dose they were taking before, it's an overdose and it causes CNS depression, stops them breathing and they die from the opioid overdose. And this is a real, probably the most dangerous time for an opioid abuser is when they've had a period of abstinence and they go back onto the opioid, they had high risk of overdosing because they don't know what dose to take to get the same effects. And so, um, You've got to be aware of these mechanisms underlying tachyphylaxis. And these compensatory mechanisms also actually reset the threshold for spasticity. So when you do take a drug holiday, you often have rebound or augmented spasticity. That's much worse than it was before you went on to the drug. And uh, a lot of my patients have noticed this. If they just suddenly go cold turkey and stop taking their baclofen, they can have severe spasticity and spasms. This is why you have to always wean uh, antispastic drugs slowly, you can't just stop taking them. Now, if this patient didn't respond to clonazepam, <clears throat> either because it didn't work or was poorly tolerated because of CNS side effects, you know, I would then try one of the gabapentinoids. We tend to try gabapentin or pregabalin. These are antispastic. Um, they have a much longer half-life than uh, than baclofen, and they can work overnight. Or we potentially try and get them onto Sativex or THC. Now, we can't really prescribe Sativex easily in the NHS. Uh, not all trusts have it on their formulary, and it's quite a, a, a quite a difficult process to get uh, Sativex prescribed. 
Now, one of the things about starting one of the longer-acting ones, clonazepam, gabapentin, pregabalin, or even Sativex, is that it lasts much longer than the night, and you often wake up in the morning with a groggy hangover effect. Um, this usually lasts three to four weeks and clears spontaneously, and in my experience, most people get used to the hangover effect. You just need to be aware of it. <clears throat> and I think by titrating the dose up very slow, you actually uh, compensate for this hangover effect. Another thing about antispastic drugs is the ragdoll effect. So some people who've got a lot of weakness underlying their spasticity, when you actually remove the weakness and you cause the tone to the legs to go floppy, they actually collapse like a ragdoll. Um, and this is something that maybe prevents them from mobilizing, even walking or using their legs to mobilize or, or transfer themselves. So you need to warn people or be aware of the ragdoll effect. And this is particularly a problem when you first talk, taking antispastics and, and it happens at night. People wake up at night thinking that they can get up with their stiff legs. Their legs give way and they fall. I've had one patient who fell out of bed because of this and couldn't get up and had to wait five hours for his carrier to come back. And so this is another example um, of sometimes if it's in a very vulnerable patient, maybe we're starting this under supervision, you know, either supervision in the community or even potentially in hospital if it's necessary. Um, if somebody's at risk of falling and being isolated, um, you know, we, tr we try and tell these people to purchase a community alarm. These are these little um, uh, alarms that they wear around their necks and they can press a button and somebody will come into the house to help them. They cost money and there's a subscription charge, but that's relatively cheap. Uh, and, you know, we would urge anybody who's on the vulnerable at risk, particularly people that live alone, to actually get themselves a community alarm. Now, the ragdoll effect's not only limited to the legs. You know, people who are wheelchair users may find when they start antispastic drugs for leg spasms, it affects their trunk and they, and they slouch forward or backwards or sideways in their wheelchair and it can be quite uncomfortable. And it can even affect their neck muscles. You know, people with much more advanced disease, they often find when they take antispastic drugs, their head flops forward or backwards or to the side. So the ragdoll effect is not just lower limbs, it affects trunk and neck. <clears throat> Um, finally, if all else fails, this particular individual may be eligible for a baclofen pump. So baclofen pump is when you put a catheter into the lumbar sac the, around the spinal cord and you infuse low doses of baclofen, uh, which go up the spinal fluid and they uh, work on the spinal cord. Um, this is an expensive and invasive procedure and it's highly specialized and only so many, there's only a few units in the country that do this, but it definitely makes an enormous difference to the quality of life with people with severe spasticity. And the good thing about intrathecal baclofen is that it works locally. <clears throat> and so the baclofen doesn't go to the brain. And so they don't get the CNS side effects, the sedation and cognitive impairment uh, from baclofen. And so that uh, shouldn't be underestimated because, you know, I've had many of my patients who've gone for baclofen pump. And when they uh, had their pumps put in and they weaned off their oral medication, they kind of wake up. You know, they, they were like, uh, they can't believe how clear their thinking is. They feel alive. Uh, the concentration, cognition, everything improves. And one of my mentors always used to refer to these patients as being baclofen zombies because when they're on their antispastic drugs, they're just not functioning cognitively. They sit there all day in and out of sleep. They're slightly confused. And uh, we mustn't underestimate this CNS suppressive effects of high doses of oral antispastic agents. And I can relate to this because I remember when I had my accident when I was knocked over by a speeding motorcycle and fractured my cervical spine, 
and had uh, compression of my nerve roots, I was put on morphine and gabapentin to control the pain. And I couldn't think, you know, I would have to read things two or three times. I would often forget things. I was almost certainly hallucinating when I was on <laughs> uh, high doses of morphine in the hospital. And I really couldn't concentrate. I could, you know, maybe concentrate for 15 or 20 minutes. Even watching, uh, you know, videos online or listening to audiobooks, I would find the audiobook running in the background and I had no idea what I'd listened to the last 10 or 15 minutes. And it's only when I had weaned my gabapentin and morphine that I wake up and realize that these things are really sedative. Um, and so we mustn't underestimate this phenomenon. And I like to refer to the zombification from antispastic agents. Uh, and this is one reason why some people should be referred for baclofen pump if they're requiring very, very high levels of oral antispastic agents, and which is affecting their cognition. Now, some of you may be on tizanidine, which is another licensed antispastic agent. I hardly use it anymore because it's not very effective, and you often need very high doses to have an antispastic effect, even in combination with other therapies. And it's also very sedating. Um, and so I think it's an overrated drug. Dantrolene, this is a very old antispastic agent that actually works at the level of the muscle. It's a muscle relaxant. Um, and although it doesn't work in inverted commas on the CNS, it's got a lot of CNS side effects. So, you know, one of them is depression. Some people get confused. It makes anxiety worse. There's even been hallucinations, disorientation, often dizziness. It alters your taste. Um, we even had people have seizures on this, and it does cause insomnia as well. Uh, one of the big problems is, is that can, it can be hepatotoxic. In other words, it affects the liver function. And so you have to monitor liver functions regularly. And due to all these factors, I actually rarely use it in clinical practice. But occasionally when everything else fails, uh, adding dantrolene, even though it's got all these side effects and, and monitoring requirements, actually helps. So it's something I keep in the on the back burner <clears throat> and use it in very, very resistant patients. Now, the cannabinoids are clearly, this is THC, is are very effective add-ons. Um, you know, we have Sativex spray. Uh, in some countries, you can actually prescribe THC itself. There's a drug called Marinol or Dronabinol that's available. And I've actually used off-label um, um, uh, other uh, what we call CB1 agonists <clears throat> um, that work on the CB uh, on the CB1 receptor as well, off-label for for severe spasticity. Um, However, the problem with all of the uh, cannabinoids is that they are antispastic at the same dose that causes euphoria or dysphoria. And a lot of people, multiple sclerosis, do not like um, um, this. And similarly with the off-label THC1 agonist, uh, <coughs> Nabilone, that I actually use off-label, again, it's very sedating and it causes dysphoria. So a lot of people find it helps their spasticity, but they can't take it because of the side effects. I think the best role for the uh, cannabinoids is actually at night time, be taken before going to bed, and it helps get pe uh, give, uh, give people a good night's sleep and it relieves spasticity and pain at night. Um, I know that uh, cannabis is legal in a lot of countries and medicinal cannabis is legal, but we can't prescribe it in the NHS. And I, re I feel very reluctant, um, you know, referring patients to the private sector to get medicinal cannabis, cannabis, but it does work. And if people uh, obtain medicinal cannabis or even street cannabis and they find it helps, I don't tell them not to do it. I just say I can't prescribe it and I don't stop them doing it. And I think some of you may have found um, uh, that works very well for you.
There are other benzodiazepines. There's a drug called diazepam. Uh, its trade name is Valium. It's got a bad reputation for being a drug of abuse, but it's often used as an antispastic agent. So, same with clobazam. We use that for, for seizures. I don't think these have got any advantage over clonazepam. So my go-to benzodiazepine for spasticity is clonazepam. And the reason why I use it, because it's got a much longer half-life. It, you know, it lasts between 12 and 24 hours. And I've got a lot of experience with it. Uh, another observation I have is, you know, we often use anti-seizure drugs, particularly sodium channel blockers. So these are drugs like carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, lamotrigine, phenytoin. These are drugs given to people to relieve them of seizures. Um, they often work very well in neuropathic or central pain syndromes. And I've actually found when I've prescribed these drugs, these sodium channel blockers for pain, patients come back and say their spasticity has improved. And some people even notice the ragdoll effect. This is not surprising because sodium channel blockers reduce uh, neuronal firing and they may just affect the balance between inhibitory and excitatory uh, transmission in the spinal cord and have antispastic effects. Um, I don't use them as antispastic agents, but I think knowing about their antispastic effects uh, is, worth, is worth it. Physical therapies, so this is both active exercise or passive movements can help spasticity a lot. And this is, uh, this is why uh, physiotherapists are an essential part of spasticity management. And, and I've actually seen many patients who actually manage their spasticity with stretching exercises alone. <clears throat> they don't even need medication. So the role of the physiotherapist cannot be underestimated in the management of spasticity. Some patients benefit from Botox injections. This is particularly useful for specific muscles. So if you've got what we call a ductus spasms, your legs cross like a pair of scissors, um, often injecting the, muscle, the adductor muscles, the, the thigh muscles that cause the legs to, uh, to close, um, can help, particularly if you need perineal hygiene or you need to self-catheterize. You know, uh, it's very, very helpful in that regard. But you can't use um, Botox for everything because there's only a limit. There's a, do there's a maximum dose you can give. So it's actually useful for specific muscles. Also, in people with very advanced spasticity, you can actually inject a, uh, a substance called phenol into the spinal canal and you let it settle on the, on the sensory nerves in the front in the back and it destroys the sensory nerves <clears throat> and it breaks the reflex from the muscle so it becomes antispastic. That's irreversible. Uh, similarly, you can go in and cut those nerves. It's called rhizotomy. It's when you cut the nerves physically and that can also be used for relieving spasticity, for example, in the lower limbs. The thing about phenol and rhizotomy is they'll also damage the nerves to the bladder and bowels. So people who uh, have these permanent procedures will almost always have lost bowel and bladder function. Um, as well. I just want to point out the time course. So spasticity doesn't just happen overnight. It often takes time to evolve. So for example, if you had a spinal cord relapse and weakness in the legs, initially your legs may be quite floppy. And then over weeks, months, years, the spasticity ramps up. So it takes time for spasticity to develop. And that's just telling us that the mechanisms underlying spasticity are almost dependent on central rewiring in the spinal cord. I've even seen the opposite, people who've had severe spasticity, and over time the spasticity improves. So whatever causes the ramping up and then the ramping down um, must involve central plasticity mechanisms uh, where, where it alters the neuronal circuits in the spinal cord. Now, there are many other factors you need to consider. So spasticity is often made worse by uh, things that stimulate sensory nerves, so things like constipation, fecal impaction, 
urinary tension, urinary tract infections or infections in general, pressure sores, poorly fitting orthoses, sitting in a wheelchair uncomfortably, menstruation, even menopause, sleep deprivation, high and low ambient temperatures, so middle of summer, middle of winter, pain, and some people have many other factors that make their spasticity worse. Um, I think it's important to identify these factors. I've even had some people use their spasticity as a readout for early uh, urinary tract infections. They know they're getting a urinary tract infection when they start getting spasms. Uh, so once you worked out what exacerbates your spasticity, you really need to target those things. Okay, And I highlight these factors because the management of spasticity is often complex and requires multidisciplinary team input. You know, it's no point in focusing on spasticity if your underlying problem is fecal impaction or a urinary tract infection. You've got to manage those things. So, they, you know, you have to think and think laterally when somebody comes in with worsening spasticity. In my experience, um, spasticity is often not managed properly. Uh, and when it's poorly controlled, it really impacts on quality of life. Uh, an example, mean, it's like a domino effect. You know, if you've got nocturnal spasms, you can't sleep, it keeps waking you up, you then get sleep deprived, you, you're sleep deprived, you're tired, uh, and it becomes a vicious cycle. So you have to break the cycle. And so, you know, if you think your spasticity has been poorly managed, you, know, you shouldn't just accept it. Contact your healthcare professional, contact your MS team, and ask them to review your spasticity management. Uh, you know, you should push for it. I'm sure many of you will have um, your own experiences uh, about how your spasticity has been managed well or not managed well, and you've developed your own hacks for it. So please share them with us. We'd like to uh, hear about them. And anything that you think was not covered in this particular uh, podcast or newsletter that you could recommend for other people to read. And I'm very interested to know how many of you are actually baclofen, gabapentin, pregabalin, clonazepam, tizanidine, or dantrolene zombies. How many of you are on these drugs at quite high doses and just can't function from a cognitive perspective? And if you are, you need to think carefully about that. You know, maybe you should uh, ask if you're eligible for a baclofen pump. And I've put a, a research paper from a colleague of mine at the Queen Square, the National Hospital, Dr. Rachel Farrell, who did many years ago, showing uh, how uh, reversible some of these cognitive effects are before and after a baclofen pump. So you go in and you do cognitive testing while you're on all the uh, antispastic drugs. Then you have your baclofen pump in, you wean off and you retest the cognition and uh, it improves across many, many domains. And this has been my experience. You know, people often come back from their having their baclofen pump insert and saying, goodness me, I feel so much better. I've woken up. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this. If you have any questions, please ask. I'll try and address them. Um, this is quite a superficial newsletter in the sense that I haven't gone into detail uh, in relation to the dosing and the um, side effects, etc., of all the drugs. Uh, I probably would have to do you know, separate uh, newsletters on each one of these therapies because the issues around... Each one of these therapies is very different. So there's baclofen, there's clonazepam, <clears throat> there's gabapentin, pregabalin, there's dantrolene, there's tarzanidine. They all uh, have you know, different issues. But I think I want you to have an overall gestalt that there's lots we can do uh, to help people with spasticity. Anyway, enjoy and um, uh, talk, talk to you soon.